You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. We are back again. It is Monday, and that means a new week of podcasts. And uh, this one, we're kicking we're kicking Monday off the right way. Uh, not only are we having our good buddy, returning guest, Justin Czar, back again, but we have another guy that you might know, especially if you listen to hunting podcasts, Mark Kenyon from the Wired to Hunt podcast. And we are going to be talking, uh, well, the first half of the podcast is basically just a BS session, but the main focus of the podcast is a hunting process. And what I mean by that, and, and I wrote it down here, a set of steps a hunter can take to be successful accomplishing their hunting goals. And we kind of break it down into a couple categories. We have any deer, and you know, when I say any deer, you can think of a doe. We have a mature buck. So we talk a little bit about, is there a process that we can take to kill a mature buck? And then we have one specific buck. We talk about if that process changes from any deer to mature buck to one specific buck and you know the guests today mark and justin bring in a lot of good points like does that process change if you're hunting high pressured public ground let's say in michigan or pennsylvania as opposed to maybe some lesser pressured states like uh, my home state of Iowa. We talk about whether that hunter is new or whether that hunter has a lot of experience. And we, we basically just run down the entire gauntlet of is there something that you can do absolutely every time you step in the woods to accomplish the same goal? And uh, the answers are all over the place. And I think that what that means is is that means that there's more than one way really to kill um, a big buck or a deer or a mature buck and uh, we, we definitely talk about that today so I mean it's one hell of a podcast other than that I'm going to get right into the commercial man if you haven't had the opportunity to take a look at exodus trail cameras you need to man um, 
they have two different versions they have the lift 2 and the new trek and i'm telling you right now two different price points two different sets of features uh, they're both really kick-ass cameras and I, I definitely if you haven't had the opportunity to take a look at these cameras man you need to so go to exodusoutdoorgear.com and if you're looking in there and you see something that you want to purchase well purchase it and enter the discount code nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers no spaces and you will receive twenty dollars off of your purchase so take advantage of that exodusoutdoorgear.com i'm not joking when i say it's a badass camera so enough of the talking let's get into today's i don't even want to know know what to call it it's kind of a bs session but we talk about hunting strategy as well um whether or not there's a process to kill these deer so i'm just gonna say today's podcast with mark kenyon and justin czar two one all right here we go this is gonna be a a pretty fun podcast i would have to say i got my buddy justin czar back on for the third time in recent history and we also have a guest who I am deeply honored to have on the podcast, <laughs> Mr. Mark Kenyon. How are you doing? Hey, hey. Good to be here. Flipping the script a little bit? I, I always enjoy that. It's nice to get to take the uh, the lazy way out and just sit here and let you run the show. <laughs> are you saying that what I do on the Wired to Hunt podcast is lazy? Oh, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I've been saying that for years. <laughs> yeah, well, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. <laughs> so... Today, I'm just kind of offended that Dan said he was deeply honored to have Mark on the podcast, and I'm just like he's shallowly honored to have me on again. <laughs> well, I've already uh, you know rubbed your shoulders, so to speak, in the first two episodes that we did with each other, and it felt pretty good. Yeah, right. You I heard I heard a little bit of that too. By the way, I was driving out, or maybe we were driving back from Montana a couple weeks ago. Me and my buddy Furter. And it was his shift to drive. We were driving straight through. It was 20 hours straight. It was his shift to drive. It was like 3 in the morning, and I really badly wanted to try to get some sleep. So I lay my head down. I'm going to sleep. And then maybe like 10 minutes in, I'm just about to pass out. And then all of a sudden I hear, oh, welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles. <laughs> I'm here with Justin Czar. And he starts listening to your guys' first episode together. And I'm like, damn it. And I could not sleep. I couldn't get your voices out of my head. I couldn't shut my mind up. It was horrible. It was the worst podcast I've ever heard. I was so angry the whole time. <laughs> and I got no sleep. Not three not, in the morning and you're listening to us talk about the death of hunting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Numbers of hunters. I'm like, oh, please, just shut up. Let me sleep. <laughs> Man, if I remember, you couldn't get to sleep uh, on the way out or back from Idaho either that one time. Yeah. I have this issue where unless I'm like completely comatose, like it, when I had them in this case, I was tired enough that if the music was on, I would be able to fall asleep. But like, I can't turn my mind off when there's conversation happening, I guess. Like I just have to listen. Um, so that's what happened this time. But with you, what it was is it was like, <laughs> it was like a pressure because I had this pressure. Like when you went to, when you, when you were on shift, 
I had my three hours and my four hours and I had to get sleep during that four hour period. And if I didn't, I knew I was going to be so tired when it was my shift again. So, you know, you go to bed or you lay down and then you look and, oh, it's been 15 minutes. Now I'm only going to get three hours and 45 minutes. And then you don't fall asleep. And, oh, now I'm only going to get three hours. And then I'm only going to get two hours. And uh, it's like stage fright, but for sleeping. <laughs> so when you drove out to Kansas, Justin, recently, was that, did you drive out by yourself or did you have a road partner? Uh, I drove out with Dustin DeCrew actually. So did he fly to Chicago? Yeah. So his wife is from the area here. Oh, okay. You know, if we give a backstory, you know, Todd and myself actually introduced Dustin to his wife. So he technically owes us for every ounce of happiness and joy he ever has for the rest <laughs> of his life. Gotta get royalties. So, <laughs> so he was here, uh, in Illinois, uh, at his wife's, uh, or at his in-laws, which is like, 15 minutes from the office and they were supposed to go back to Wyoming, I think on like Sunday. And the guy that I was going to go to Kansas with ended up not being able to go. So I called Dustin last week on like Saturday, the day before he was supposed to go back to Wyoming. And I'm like, Hey, why don't you just postpone your Wyoming going home and come to Kansas with me and hunt turkeys for a couple of days. And the cool thing about the whole story was Dustin's dad was actually down in Kansas at the same place I was going to go to hunt. So I was going to hook up with Dustin's dad because I, we'd met a couple times in the past. Um, so Dustin told me, oh, my dad's going to be down there. So why don't you guys get together? And uh, so I told Dustin, I'm like, hey, why don't you come with me to Kansas for a couple days? So his wife was super awesome, allowed him to extend the, the, the stay here in Illinois. So we drove down to Kansas and we didn't tell Dustin's dad that he was coming. So he had no idea he was showing up. We show up in Kansas and we meet up with Dustin's dad. And all of a sudden, the door opens with a truck and Dustin walks out and his dad was like, holy crap, you know, I didn't know you were coming. So it was, uh, it was a pretty cool experience just all around. So the question awesome. though is, did you guys, were you able to sleep on the ride out there or did, was it a no, day trip? No, it's only like nine hours. Oh, okay. So we left, uh, we left on Sunday, uh, like late in the morning. We wanted to get there before dark to see if we could roost some birds. So we left Sunday morning and we got there like in maybe an hour before dark. So, and then we drove back yesterday and we, we hunted for a couple hours in the morning and then packed up the truck and drove home. So all of our driving was during the daytime. Yeah. I went on a road trip once with a guy in college from Iowa to Florida to watch uh, an, a university of Iowa bowl game. And before the trip, the guy took, he had, he was having back problems. So he took a whole bunch of muscle relaxants and fell asleep. <laughs> so I had to drive 18 freaking hours straight through the night by myself because this guy said he couldn't drive and was tired. I was a little pissed. Yeah, I can imagine. That's brutal. So, turkey, Justin, why don't you talk a little bit about how that uh, turkey trip to Kansas with Dustin turned out? Sure. So, Dustin's actually the guy that got me to originally even go to Kansas and hunt. He had, he had done it uh, for kind of a number of years and always seemed to have pretty good luck. So, we went down last year in the spring. Specifically, we went down to scout uh, some public land to come back hunt, hunted in the fall. But we figured, you know, what the hell, if we're going to drive all the way to Kansas, we may as well try to shoot something while we're there. So we coordinated our trip uh, to do some turkey hunting because they have an early archery season uh, for turkey. So last year I went down with my buddy Matt Miller and got super lucky and found a, a bunch of birds and was able to shoot a nice bird. And then uh, going into this year, Matt and I were planning on just going back. We're like, you know, the drive's not too bad. The season opens before it opens here in, in Illinois, you know, and it's all public land. You know, you just go out and try to find some birds and shoot them. So uh, that's essentially what we did. 
you know, luckily it, it kind of worked out really well because the property we hunted last year, Dustin and I went to it Sunday night and just didn't, couldn't see any birds anywhere, didn't hear anything, didn't look like anything was going on. But luckily, since Dustin's been going down there for so long, he knew uh, a bunch of folks in the area, you know, other hunters. And I tell you what, the people in Kansas are way cooler than people in the Midwest for the most part when it comes to, to hunting. Because Dustin just like texted one of his buddies and said, hey, man, you know, we want to go turkey hunting. Have you seen any birds around? And his buddy was like, yeah, I, you know, I actually saw some yesterday over on this, this piece of public ground that Dustin knew fairly well. So, you know, we were like, okay, well, let's go check that out. So we drove over there and, you know, sure enough, we got there about 15 minutes uh, before dark and we were able to spot some birds and watch them fly up in the roost. So uh, what we did is we just waited till dark and uh, went out and set up the blind and got all the camera gear and everything kind of ready to go for the morning. So we didn't have to, to worry about doing it in the morning. And then uh, we came back the next morning, got light. Birds were obviously all still there. They flew down. Uh, we had three jakes come right into the decoy setup and we only had a, just over a day to hunt so i was not going to be picky by any stretch of the imagination so i shot the first the first jake that came into the the decoy setup and uh so we had one bird down and then we ended up moving the blind um and then that afternoon dustin shot a freaking pig of a turkey um almost a 12 inch beard on it uh i had a shot at the the other bird that was with the one that dustin shot but unfortunately i totally choked and missed um so we should have had three turkeys down really but hey, two turkeys in a day of hunting and then uh, we hunted the following morning didn't really see a whole lot packed up the truck and came home so all things considered it was short and sweet and to the point is kansas a uh, two turkey state then it is yeah it's a two turkey state so um we each bought a single tag and then after i shot my bird i went and bought a second tag um figuring hey we're here you know before we go home maybe we'll try to go shoot another one um i had an opportunity but just uh didn't pull it off it was one of those you know dustin shot his bird and it it died it was about 35 yards out there where the bird actually died and then the other bird came and started you know beating the hell out of it awesome. while it was dead and i was in like the quote-unquote cameraman seat so i was set up on the right i grabbed my bow knocked an arrow i was kind of trying to shoot out of a side window and i was all discombobulated and just didn't quite pull the shot off the way I should have. But Hey, I mean, for us to go down there, you know, and I mean, that was my first time stepping foot on that particular piece of property. Like I said, we had a little bit of help. I mean, somebody pointed us in the direction and said, I saw birds over here the other day. Luckily they were still there. I mean, without that, I doubt we really would have been able to pull off what we did in that short of a time frame. Um, so from that regard, we got a little bit lucky. I'll, I'll take some help where I can get it. You know, whether it's a deer or a turkey, if somebody could point me in the right direction, it <laughs> certainly certainly helps. Right. Just curious, what's a non-res tag in Kansas cost for a turkey hunt? Yeah. For everything, you know, hunting license tag and everything, it's 160 bucks. That's not bad. Yeah, it's not terrible. And then it's only like 35 bucks for the second bird to okay. add on after that. So it's not another, you know, 160 or whatever. So, yeah, it was, you know, not, not too terrible. You know, the hotels are nice and cheap down there, like 50 bucks a night. You know, we just eat at Casey's pretty much nonstop, <laughs> coffee and pizza. And uh, it was a good time. Nice. Living the dream. Yeah. That's right. So where in Kansas was this hunt? Because my uncle lives in southeastern Kansas. And he, the way he tells it is you can pretty much, I don't know, close your eyes and point it into a field and pull the trigger and you're going to kill a turkey. 
That's what they say. We are in northeast Kansas, almost okay. uh, towards the Nebraska line. Um, and there's a, a good amount of birds there, but I think the, the problem with this early archery season is the birds really aren't broken up yet, so they're still in bigger groups. You know, we saw 20-some-odd birds that, that first day. Last year, I think Matt and I saw like 60 birds in one day. So they're, they're still in bigger groups. They're usually pretty hot right off the roost, and then it gets kind of hard after that. I think, you know, the turkey rut, if you want to call it that, whatever <laughs> it is, like heats up a little bit later, you know, in April, and the birds start to break up and disperse a little bit more. So, you know, this time of year, it's kind of hit or miss. But if you can find the birds... You know, in, in Kansas, I mean, there's not a lot of timber, yeah. you know, so when you find them, usually you can watch them from far and see where they roost. And then, I mean, it's like everything I hate about deer hunting, I love about turkey hunting. It's like turkeys fly up in the tree at night and they can't see anything. So you literally just walk out in the middle of an open field and after dark pop, or in the morning and pop up a blind 100 yards from where they're roosted and throw out some decoys, wait for them to fly down call at them a little bit and they seem to come right in at least that's my experience so it's great man we're sitting in the blind drinking coffee you know just bsing watching the birds in the trees before they flew down so it's definitely a little bit more relaxing style of hunting than than deer hunting which can be a little stressful i think yeah absolutely mr Kenyon. when does uh turkey season kick off in michigan man just hearing justin tell his story has got me really fired up for it right. um it's uh, April 23rd um, starts the first season here, and there's a whole bunch of different little seasons, but um, I'll be kind of – I'm not sure which tag I'm going to try to use to actually shoot a bird. We, we can only shoot one bird, but I'm going to be, like, going on a bunch of other turkey hunts with other people, like, kind of helping them out or, like, going out with my dad, going out with a couple friends. Um, so April 23rd, that first week, I'm going to try to help my, my nephew, who's 14, try to get him his first turkey. Um, some point, maybe that coming weekend and then, um, do some more during May, try to get my dad out and, uh, try to kill one for myself too. So, um, right. I'm, I'm excited. Right. Are you doing everything in Michigan or are you going anywhere? We'll probably go to Ohio once. Um, that will be it. Michigan and Ohio. Yeah. What's the, it's fun. what's the out of state, uh, cost for a Ohio tag non-res? Man, if I remember right, um, I think you have to get a hunting license, which is like 125 or something like that. And then the turkey tag itself is just like 25 bucks or 35 bucks or, or something like that. Um, so not not bad at all. Right, right. You know, that's not a bad option for guys looking to go uh, do something out of state. I think if I was to do an out of state hunt, you know, let's say for whitetails, I might consider seeing if that state has decent turkey hunting and going and kind of doing both at the same time turkey hunting while scouting for whitetail locations it's a good way to kill two birds with one stone and you know great way to get access too. if you get out there there might be you know we've talked about this before dan but sometimes people are more willing to allow something like shed hunting permission or maybe turkey hunting permission right um, you get that foot in the door, establish that relationship, and then maybe you got a chance to come back and chase some whitetails. Right. So, Mark, you mentioned calling for other people, and that's one thing that I love to do now. Like, I've killed, you know, I've killed a lot of turkeys, and I love to hunt, you know, I love to be the hunter and go out by myself, but 
I love calling for my wife. And once my wife gets a bird, like the last couple of years, you know, she'll get a bird and then I'll take my stepdad out and I'll call for him. And there's something about that now, like in this stage of my turkey hunting career, if you want to call that, that I find a lot of enjoyment just watching the hunt unfold without having to worry about shooting the the animal. Is that something that you're kind of, you're in that zone now? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, I have just as much fun kind of calling and playing guide as anything else. Um, and it's a way to extend your season too, especially here in Michigan where you can only kill one bird. Yeah. You know, lots of times, lots of past years, I can kill a bird the first day of the season, first day or two of the season, then I'm done. I don't want to be done. So either I get really picky with what I shoot or I shoot a bird, fill the freezer, have some wild fried turkey nuggets, and then just go out with other friends and call for them and put them on birds. And it's that, it's that whole experience for me. Um, just interacting with the turkey, bringing them in, chasing them around. Um, that's probably more fun to me than pulling the trigger for sure. So Absolutely. I, I, I'm at that point, like anyone who I can possibly convince, like, People aren't like trying to get me to help them find turkeys. I'm trying to convince people to want to shoot turkeys so I can help them because <laughs> I, I just want to be out there doing it. Absolutely. Um, so I had one year where I, I got five people on birds, and that was fun. Um, so this year I'm going to try to do it again. Right, yeah. I'm taking my buddy out. Uh, so the downfall to having kids is you ha- you get to hunt less, right? So I have this va- this vacation that I take typically three days it's a, it's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I call it turkey camp where me and the wife go down to my, I guess, my deer hunting spots, and we turkey hunt. And I drop the kids off, and my mom takes care of them for those three days. And it's, it's, it's really fun. But this year, because Friday is kindergarten roundup for my daughter, I can't go down to the first day of turkey camp. we got to do kindergarten roundup. But that morning, I'm taking my buddy who has never killed a turkey before out and uh i'm gonna call for him so i'm I'm really looking forward to that more importantly what in the world is kindergarten roundup Justin, yeah what is that do you, i mean do, I, do you, my kids do you rope them and brand them kindergarten roundup do you have a kindergarten roundup justin not that i know of uh, unless you, my wife's holding out on me you probably missed it great you know you're such a good father if you missed i was probably out of town hunting (laughs) (laughs) kindergarten roundup is they take the preschoolers to kindergarten and they introduce them to the kindergarten lifestyle i guess they show them where they sit who their teacher's going to be um you know where the bathrooms are what they're going to learn little centers and stuff like that so kindergarten roundup and why does this entail you being there (laughs) Oh, Kenny, so much to learn. So much to learn. Me and Justin had a really good conversation about our wives before this podcast started. (laughs) And, uh, oh, you were there too. But, but, uh, (laughs) you know, you you, you pick your battles, and that's a battle that I I will lose. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to, it's not even, I'm I'm not fighting it. I guess I'm forfeiting it. I'm just going to do the kindergarten roundup, and then I'll go turkey hunting the next two days. Yep. More power to you. That's what you got to do. I have uh, kindergarten music singing performance thing coming up here shortly. And I'm sure the grandparents and everyone will be there probably like bringing flowers and crying. (laughs) You know, like it's the greatest achievement in the history of mankind. 
that a bunch of you know five-year-olds are able to sing songs for 15 minutes so <laughs> that's coming up shortly for me yeah i hear that well we've talked for literally 20 minutes about turkey hunting and some other stuff but turkey hunting is great i, I just want to say this a couple years ago i was not into turkey hunting at all Why like not? i wouldn't even drive an hour and a half to go hunt turkeys here in illinois because we don't have them here but like where we live at well we have a, a decent population but not a ton and my lease is like an hour and a half away and i would i just was like i don't feel like going to chase turkeys because i just didn't care yeah. and then a couple years ago for some reason i just was like yeah, i'm gonna try turkey hunting again and actually, you know, shot a couple birds and started having a good time and like just got hooked on it. And now here I am, you know, driving to Kansas, you know, to almost 20 hours round trip to hunt for a day and a half. You know, it's uh, it's an addicting thing. It's kind of like golf to me. Yeah. Like it's a lot more fun to do than it is to watch. Uh, but <laughs> I think uh, turkey hunting is great. And it kind of helps scratch that itch, you know, that we all are feeling right now. We want something to do. We want to get out and enjoy hunting and the wilderness and everything so it'd be nice if spring weather would get here i don't know what it's like where you guys are at but it was uh 24 degrees when we got in the blind yesterday morning in kansas so that kind of sucked i wish it was warmer that's the one thing i like about turkey hunting is it's usually warm yeah so hopefully spring hurries up and freaking gets here already is there snow on the ground up in michigan yet mark we had snow yesterday, but it's all melted, and today was a little bit nicer. Still kind of gloomy, but warmer temperatures, so I hope, hopefully it springs on the way. Right, right. I had uh, some guys, oh, man. Well, the other day, I saw a 130-inch, I'd say a 10-pointer. Probably, he looked like a 2-year-old or maybe a 3-year-old, carrying both sides still. And it was wow. it was like April 4th was when uh when i saw that so and then you know i got another guy sending me pictures of guys are still finding fresh sheds so yeah man we were picking them up a week and a half ago that's right i wish i had more time to shed hunt anyway 40 (laughs) sheds this year man 40 sheds this year there's a little bit of like i hate you for that (laughs) i know i found two that that's you that's usually that's usually my shed hunting <laughs> year this is an anomaly so i'm just gonna try to soak it in while i have it yeah well i just wish i i wish i could shed hunt more i i really like doing things now like justin you mentioned you like turkey hunting now i really like shed hunting a lot and looking for mushrooms a lot like two things that take literally no strategy or skill you just put your head down and you walk back and forth in certain areas and I would disagree with that. I do too. Because I think shed hunting takes some sort of strategy and skill, and I really suck at it. And some of my friends are really good at it, and we'll go out and like look on the same pieces of property. Like Some people just have a knack for finding shed antlers. So I've finally come to the realization I'm just not good at it. Unless they're really, really big and I step on them, I usually don't find them. So now I just let other people like that I hunt with go find all the big antlers of the deer we're chasing. I just, I'm like, yeah, you guys all go shed hunt the properties, you know, whatever. Just let me know what you find because I'm just not good at it. And I seem to have kind of a knack for shooting turkeys. So maybe that's why I like it more. And I don't like shed hunting as much anymore because I just suck at it. There you go. Mark, you disagree that, let me put it this way. Yeah, there (laughs) might be a little bit of strategy when it comes to where to look for the antlers, maybe, but the like finding them all you have to do is really just 
like for me, I just put my head down and I walk back and forth, you know, cover, cover the ground. And if you see them, you pick them up. That's what shed hunting is, right? Yeah, but <laughs> you gotta, you gotta see them. There's like a trick to, to seeing them and recognizing. Are you, are you colorblind? Are you I'm not colorblind, but I'm telling you, I've been doing this forever. And like, <laughs> I'll go out with some of my friends that are really just good at shed hunting, just have a knack. And I mean, we're walking the same properties and oftentimes we're only walking 60 yards from each other. And I used to just think it was dumb luck. Like, man, Tommy found more sheds than me or Mike found more sheds than me. But it's every single time we go out. And it's been that way for two decades now. So finally, I realized <laughs> that it's not just an anomaly and I'm just not good at finding shed antlers. And yeah, I'm man. sure there's other people out there that feel my pain. I really think that there's something to knowing the right places to look, the right places to focus your time. I think new shed hunters will just walk everything and kind of use the same amount of attention and care to every strip, every piece of ground. I think the best shed hunters are efficient, so they focus their the majority of their time on the highest odds places. They know the specific little spots worth double checking. Like when I see that little piece of high ground with a cedar on it, I know I definitely want to check right there. And then you know, more times than not, not more times than that, but on occasion you do find one there. Um, and then I do think a big thing is maintaining like an intense level of focus. So many people I know with after walking for an hour or two, uh, they start looking around, playing on their phone, texting, looking at rubs, looking up at the sky, you know, it can get boring walking for hours and hours and hours. But if you can be that guy that can literally stare at the ground, constantly searching and scanning, looking for just a little tine or a little flick of white or a reflection off a main beam, like looking for those little things and doing that for eight hours straight for a full day and then the next day doing the same thing and putting 10 miles on your boots, doing that over and over again. I think that takes maybe it's either skill or determination or some combination of the two. But I do think that there are qualities like that that lead to some people finding more sheds than others. Maybe. I'm really, I like, I do it, number one, to just get outside, you know. Number two, you know, obviously the sheds are cool, but I love to just shut my brain off and decompress. And I think that is why I, I love shed hunting so much, is it gives me the ability to shut off. Yeah. And go, yeah. almost go and do an autopilot. And there's, like, different goals, right? I mean, if your goal is to do that, to just have a good time, to relax, to shut off, and then, yeah, hopefully find some antlers too. That's one thing. If you're in it like, I want to find the absolute most possible sheds on this piece of ground, then it requires a different mindset. There's nothing wrong with either one, I don't think. But it depends on what you want. Yeah, when you, found those, when you found those 40 sheds this year, how many high fences did you have to go through to find those? <laughs> so many. So many. <laughs> how many did you have to buy on Craigslist? <laughs> yeah. Dude, I planted 37 of them. I spent $10,000 on Amazon to get these two toys. And... <laughs> Just for content. Oh, but it's so good. So worth it. So worth it. <laughs> so, that, so now I have <laughs> – what, what the hell were we going to talk about today? I don't know, systems. turkeys, sheds, systems. Game of Thrones. Systems. Game of Thrones. I really did want to talk about Game of Thrones. Nobody bid on that one in the I email. Well, I've never seen Game of Thrones. Oh, my God. I didn't get Dan. HBO. Dan, I'll let Dan, you borrow Dan. my login, Dan. I'm all full. So good. You've got plenty of time between now and next season, next deer hunting season to binge watch all of it. What, your Brazers login? <laughs> 
Uh, I keep that one close <laughs> to the vest, man. I don't share that. Oh, buddy. Should uh, we talk more about that? <laughs> what, uh, what I can tell you is this. Back to my turkey story. Dustin and I were sitting in a blind for, I don't know, 10 hours or so on Monday. And, you know, we're filming all of our hunts. And at one point, we were filming some interviews. And we just kind of let the camera run for like a half an hour. And our we, we went places that no man should go with these conversations. <laughs> and uh, I came up with this idea. I was like, you know, obviously this footage can never see the light of day because <laughs> we'll lose every sponsor that we've ever had. Right? But I was like, man, I wish we could, like, take this footage and put it in a vault somewhere and, like, give it to my kids. So, <laughs> like, when I die, they can go back and watch this. You know, and Dustin's like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. He's like, I definitely don't want my parents to see it because they would probably disown me. He's like, but I maybe my kids. This was dad so, at his best. <laughs> this was my dad at his finest moment. It's funny because I feel like for men in general, like we're around like kids and our women. And obviously the way men think and the way women think are completely different. So people get a watered down version of what a man, I guess is really like, or what we're really thinking. Like, thank God for human filters, because if I said or acted on every one of my thoughts, there's a good chance I'd be in federal prison right now. So, (laughs) so like me and, uh, my buddy Ben and my other buddy Ryan, when we drive to the ATA show, it's just like a giant purge of everything that we've ever held back for the entire year just gets purged out the week of the ATA show. Yep. Gotta, can, gotta have that. Then we go back we've to our a, lives and we're perfectly normal again. Yeah. It's good. It's good. A healthy, I don't know, manly things. <laughs> if you want to call it that. Yeah. But I, I want to talk, Dan, you said today we we're going to talk about systems, systems, hunting yeah. systems. I want you to explain to us and to everybody listening what your kind of definition is of right. these hunting systems. So that I, we're all on the same page. And I even wrote it down a little bit. So the, the, okay. the, the definition of this, I guess, hypothetical hunting system that we're going to talk about here is a set of steps a hunter takes to be successful accomplishing their hunting goal, okay? And I want to break it down into basically three categories with two subcategories. We have any deer, mature bucks, a target buck, meaning one particular buck you're chasing the entire season, and then versus maybe new hunters versus versus experienced hunters okay so does that make sense to you guys first of all yes i think i got it mark it's a lot but i'm sure we'll figure it out okay all right yeah and it's very high level right now but we're gonna break it down yeah so do you think and i'm gonna kick it off to mark first do you think that a person or a a hunter can and, and, and let's just say bow hunting right now because I, I feel that um, bow hunting, and I know this is probably going to piss some people off, but takes a little bit more thought and strategy into being successful. So for a bow hunter, do you think that there is a system that they can put in place, and, and we're going to talk about killing any deer, right? Let's say just a doe, right? Um, a system that they can put into place, a certain set – set of steps that they can follow those every year and be successful. 
And are we talking one of those four different types of goals yet? That being any deer, mature buck, yep. target buck. Yep. So we're starting off with any deer. Any deer. Any deer. Doe. You know, like what people would consider the easiest thing to shoot would be like a yearling doe or something like that. Yeah. So uh, I'll kind of maybe approach this at a high level and then we can dive further when we get to each specific one of those different tiers. But I think when it comes to this idea of having a system, systematizing how you approach hunting, I think it can be a helpful thing to a degree because I think that especially if you're newer, um, there's a lot to try to figure out. You're trying to understand where should I hunt? When should I hunt? How should I hunt? What should I be looking for? What should I be bringing with me? What? All these different questions, right? So if you can start to establish some kind of framework that has some of these answers for you already pre-figured out so that each day when you go out, you don't need to answer all these questions again exactly. Um, it, it, there's something in psychology called decision fatigue um, where basically the more small decisions you have to make, even if they're small, trivial things, they're using the example of like just during your day. Like you, if you have to decide what to wear in the morning and then you need to decide what color socks to put on and then you need to decide between two different kinds of toothpaste maybe and then you need to decide between four different options for breakfast and yada 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 all these different little decisions while taking any one of them individually doesn't seem like much the point was that you can actually perform better throughout a course of the day if you systematize things so you eliminate some of those decisions so the way that you handle your work day might be a lot better if in the morning you just know, all right, I know I'm going to wear this. I know I'm going to use this toothpaste. I know I'm having my smoothie. I know that I'm going to grab this cup of coffee. I'm going to take this way to work. Um, and I'm going to do these four things. You don't even need to think about it. It just happens over the course of a long period of time that eases a certain amount of decision making stress or wear and tear that goes into your mind in tiny, tiny, tiny little bits. This is death by a, by a million cuts. Um, so this kind of concept, I think, can apply to hunting in that if you can, in certain situations, if you can start to build this set of systems or rules or frameworks so that you don't need to grind your mind out and analyze every little bit for each step, you can just, A, it might be more enjoyable because you're not stressing all the time. B, it just makes things a little bit easier because you've got a starting point. Um and then C, it helps you to focus on the most important decisions with more energy. So this then applies even more so when you're hunting a specific buck or a mature buck because then you're getting into all these little minute details when you're trying to figure out you know, how all these different factors might relate to each other, wind, barometer, access, time of year, blah, blah, blah. Um, so this is my long and rambling way of saying systems can be helpful to to ease some of the the mind work that you have to do. But, and this applies even more so the further you go up those tiers, as you mentioned, you do need to be flexible and you do need to be able to adjust and you need to be able to try new things. Um, so I, I won't dive into all that, but at a very high level, that's like my overarching thought process when you talk about the system thing. Um, and I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. Justin, your thoughts. Uh, I think as it pertains to specifically killing any deer, right? If you're just a bow hunter and you want to go out and shoot a deer, I definitely think there's a system that you could have that would ensure your success. 
almost every year. I mean, provided you're able to make the shot. I mean, killing any deer with archery equipment, like in today's day and age, because of the just vast amounts of information and knowledge that we all have and we can learn and in, in scouting we can do from our computers anymore. I mean, it's just it's changed the game. Uh, so, yeah, I think you can have you know a basic system that should, for the most part, work, right? I mean, if you were to just say, hypothetically, if you were to just say, I'm only going to hunt evenings, uh, starting on, let's say, October 1st, when the season starts here in Illinois, and I'm going to only hunt when the wind is right, and I'm going to have three different stands on different field edges where deer are coming out, and I know this because I have trail camera pictures of them, you know, and you do that enough times, like, you should probably put yourself into a position where you'd be able to shoot a deer of some sort, you know, within a couple weeks, right? So, I mean, obviously, as Mark alluded to, as you climb that ladder of difficulty and you start saying, okay, now it's only bucks and only mature bucks and only a very specific buck, like, that system has to be more fluid because things change so much, you know, with those different animals. Um, But even so, as you go up the ladder, I still think there's, there's a common thread, right, between all of those things. And it's making, hopefully, what are smart decisions. Um, you know, along the way, it's, you know, again, hunting the right wind, taking advantage and, you know, hunting when conditions are right, you know, when you can, um, things along those lines, it can certainly increase your odds for success. Uh, I do like the, you know, Mark, to your point, the idea of this decision fatigue and the death by a million cuts. I think a lot of us do that to ourselves, you know, because there are so many things to think about and the barometric pressure and the moon and the time of the year and the how how long has it been since i hunted this stand and was anybody else in there or over there or when's the last time i got a trail camera picture of this deer there's just so much data and so much things to think about sometimes i think it is overwhelming for a lot of us and we we just you know i i know i get fatigued i think mentally trying to figure out what i should do when sometimes i believe the best thing would be to just simplify my hunting and have a few less options and a few less stands that I know are in good areas and just keep haunting those instead of trying to decide which one of the 30 stands I want to go to. If I only had six, it makes my decision-making a lot easier. Right. Yeah. And and on the wired to hunt podcast, me and Mark, we talk about that a lot uh, about, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but just being horrible at making game time decisions as far as over death by overanalyzing. Yeah, paralysis by analysis, right? Yep. Yep. And I think, yeah, I think that it's a, I think decision, like there's a whole, when it comes to deer hunting and doing it successfully, especially if you're trying to kill an older buck, there's obviously tons of work that goes into it. I feel like it's a combination of A, knowing the right stuff, B, putting in the work to do that stuff, and then C, it's like, then you've got this decision making, like the final fork in the road, there's many forks in the road. But then you got to make the right decision at the right time. And that, I think, is where, like, the secret sauce is. I feel like you've got the the very, very best. They are able to make those game-time decisions. And there's, there's, some, there's some magic there. But then I also think, to some degree, people develop systems. They maybe don't call them that. But in their mind, they've got some certain, like, assumptions or rules that the, the, now their brain just works this way. But over time, because of experience, things they've learned, they have these things that make those game time decisions easier. Um, and I think that's something that maybe when you're starting out, you need to actually think out 
and write out or something like that. But eventually I think it becomes like instinct. We talk about that sixth sense or that, uh, that killer instinct or whatever. I think that is part of it, but there's underlying stuff happening that leads to those types of things. Gotcha. So I would say one other thing to add, you kind of went ABC. I think D is uh, disciplined. You know, I think a lot of hunters, myself included, have, there's times when we just lack discipline to do what we know we should be doing, yeah. but we don't for one reason or another. Either we decide not to go hunting at all or not to go to a specific spot because we want to try something else. And it's like the second guessing ourselves when you, if you could just be disciplined and stick to your, your plan or stick to your system, like so many times your first instinct is the right instinct, but we don't go with that one. We overanalyze it and we go somewhere else and it turns out to be the wrong decision. The yeah. so one thing I've tried to do is just be like, if this is the first thing that jumps out at me, like this is where I should go. This is what I should do. Like try to just trust my gut a little bit more instead of second guessing it and being like, well, you know, I heard this guy do this thing or I got this one picture. And it's like, that's the paralysis by analysis. Just stick with the first thing that comes in to your mind. Cause it's usually the right thing. Right. So real quick, what I'll say is in regards to any deer, I think that, a guy as far as, and, and I'm only using where I hunt as an example, right? It's compared to Michigan public ground. I hunt in Iowa on private ground. Um, yes, I share it with other hunters, but I feel that I could write steps on a piece of paper and hand it to someone who's never, you know, aside from, you know, practicing shooting archery, you know, practicing with their bow, I could hand that piece of paper to a person who's never hunted before and they could read it, follow the instructions and go out and, and kill a doe on a field edge, uh, the first week in October. That's, that's what I feel and as far as creating a process, creating a list of steps that I could hand to someone and they could, they could, you know, if they, if they're good at archery, they could kill a deer basically. So. The next is obviously, you know, these steps are, are things that I think most hunters kind of go through is they want to kill deer and now they want to start stair-stepping up to whether it's a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old. And now we're talking about mature bucks. So Justin, how does a system change or how you approach uh, the goal change when you're going from any deer to hunting now just mature bucks? I think one of the biggest things, I'm going to go back to just discipline again, um, because I think the overall concepts, for the most part, at a high level are the same, right? You got to be smart about decision making and where you want to go and when you want to go there, but you have to have a whole other level of discipline. You know, you can't make mistakes that when you're just trying to shoot any deer, sometimes you can get away with making mistakes here and there. When you're trying to shoot mature deer, like, the amount of mistakes you can get away with are a lot, that narrow of, or that margin of error is a lot narrower. So for me anyways, like, I, and I've said this before, like I'm kind of a simple hunter when it comes to like the concepts of how, when, and where I hunt, you know, uh, late in October and through, you know, most of November mornings, I'm trying to tuck myself into a bedding area or a transition area where I think does or bucks may be going looking for does or going back to bed. Uh, evenings are usually food sources. Uh, during when the rut, when it's really kicking hard and bucks are cruising, 
kind of a pinch point type of guy. Um, and those are my, like, at a very, very high level, obviously there's little minute decisions that you make on individual properties as far as like which tree you're going to be in. Cause we all know like yards or feet can be the difference between, you know, getting a shot and not getting a shot. Um, but I think the macro view, like the concepts are still the same. It just comes down to discipline. It comes down to a little bit more hard work, a little bit more planning, um, maybe some more scouting, just more intense detail to things like weather and wind direction and uh, your scent and the amount of noise you make. Uh, because again, that, that margin for error just gets a little bit narrower when you want to shoot a mature buck versus just any deer. Right. Okay. So kind of same question to you, Mark, but I'm going to throw some, uh, some restraints on it. Do you think like, now I'm going to be talking about micro versus macro approach to hunting mature bucks. Do you think people get caught up too much in the the macro of it or the the micro of it when talking let's say about barometer or moon phase or you know cold fronts as opposed to a, a higher level where i could say go hunt in a pinch point or go hunt downwind of a bedding area well i think that there's value to both but you know moderation for everything right so and then I also think it does depend on your experience level too. So if you are not terribly experienced, but you're hearing us talk about all these little factors like barometer, moon, blah, 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 that stuff can definitely get you tangled up in the weeds way too much. And for someone who's still figuring things out, who maybe hasn't had a lot of experience, hasn't killed a lot of mature bucks yet. I'd say try to focus on the macro, like understand the few core principles, like you said, and like Justin said too, there's a few core things that can help you, if you want to call it build a system, or that can kind of just guide you on the right path, you know, during the rut, focus on pinch points or hunt down one of a bedding area, focus on the does. If you keep a few of those core things always in mind and let that direct you, that is a great place to start. Um, and, and in some cases, that's all you need. If you're hunting a big private property, with not a lot of pressure on it and you're in an area with a lot of mature bucks, um, you could just do that sometimes and you might be pretty successful. Um, in other situations though, and as you get more experienced, you might need to get into the weeds a little more. Um, but I think there's always the risk of going too far because that, like we said, the paralysis by analysis, that's a real thing. But I do think there's value in details. I do think details matter, especially when you're hunting in heavily pressured places especially in places where there's not a lot of mature bucks. So I'm a big believer that here in Michigan, on the small farms I hunt, you can't make mistakes. Like you can get away with one mistake maybe, or that might be it. You might have about one chance, and if you screw it up, or if a buck crosses your path, or he spots you, or he wins you, or you make one wrong decision, that might be it for you, because that's the only mature buck on the spots you can hunt. And that's the one of three days maybe he was going to move in daily. You just don't get many chances. So I think in those cases, in those situations, the micro does matter more. That's when you know I start paying attention to things like, okay, I need to try to pick my very first sit and my best stand has got to be the best possible night because I know that I'm not going to be able to get the same opportunity in two days. So I do start paying attention to things like, okay, will this temperature change help me or will this shift in wind direction help me or all these other things, historical patterns. You know, This buck came out in the same place around the same time two years in a row those types of things are going to start entering the equation for me because I just have to pay a little more attention simply because the chances are so rare. Um, but 
if again, if you go down that path too soon and you haven't, if you don't have an A plus on all the foundations yet, you're going to get messed up. So it's like you're going through high school and you're taking your basic algebra and your geometry. All those things are really important and you can go through life being just fine understanding algebra and geometry, just your basic freshman, sophomore math or whatever, and you're probably going to be okay. But if you're wanting to all of a sudden be a rocket scientist, um, you probably need that calculus. But if you were just going to be a, you know, whatever it is that you do, Dan, I still don't understand what you do. Um, but if, <laughs> if I was going to try to do whatever Dan did, maybe I'd be okay with algebra and geometry. But if I all of a sudden jumped into calculus uh, without already getting those things, I'm going to be swimming around completely confused. Um, so, yeah. So I think that there's there's a balancing act there. And it just depends on each different situation. Um, so like where I'm at personally, I feel like, you know, I, I feel really confident in my foundations. I'm targeting mature bucks. I'm targeting them in, in lots of times heavily pressured places. So I do need to pay attention to these details. But my challenge that I have now, though, is understanding all the details, understanding all the factors, but then not going too far. So being able to pull out when you have to, knowing that fine line you can walk without getting too tangled in that stuff. Um, again, that's one of those things that I think comes with experience and time. Um, but I always do find whenever I find myself getting, you know, stressed out about a decision like that or paralyzed by trying to figure out which stand to hunt, you know, this day or this day, I always try to just go back to foundations, just go back and think about what are the core things here, talk through that in my head. And lots of times then you get that gut instinct, that, that first instinct again, like you were saying, Justin, like once you think about the core things, the foundations and all of a sudden, like, oh yeah, the, the first option or the first thing that comes to my mind is X. Yeah, that makes sense. Go that way. Gotcha. Now, just to elaborate a little bit more on that, Justin, do you ever think about those, like some of these really specific macro type decisions like barometer, moon phase, things like that? I definitely do, for sure. I think for me, it's more uh, temperature, I think, more like moon phase, to be honest with you. I've to a certain degree kind of given up thinking it matters all that much. Uh, you know, primarily just because I put a lot of stock into it for a long time and it seems like I just, I felt like it was a 50, 50 shot. You know, sometimes it was like, Oh man, the moon's going to be great. And I'd plan a trip, you know, and the weather would be right and the moon would be great and everything just, you know, and I didn't see anything. And then I would, you know, be like, okay, it's a full moon. So the deer aren't really going to move. I'm going to go, sit over here and I'd see deer all over the dang place. So moon, I don't put as much stock in anymore. I think temperature, you know, which temperature changes generally are going to be uh, accompanied by barometric pressure changes. They kind of just go hand in hand usually with fronts moving in and out. Yeah. So I think, you know, those two things for me are probably the most impactful. I don't really care too much about the moon anymore. Um, so yeah. And I think we talked before, you know, I'm in a fairly fortunate position here at my job where I have some local places to hunt uh, and some flexibility with work where when the conditions are going to line up and be right and you're going to get that front that moves in maybe that's bringing some some cold weather with it for the first time in a week or 10 days and the, the winds are right I have the opportunity to sneak it out and I've traditionally had some some good luck then so I think you know right before a front hits especially a cold front um, I seem to have pretty good luck and then usually on the back side of those fronts when that high pressure starts kicking in and we get those bluebird days. I used to think when I was younger, for some reason, I just always had it in my head that like 
cold, dreary, drizzly, nasty kind of days were the best days to hunt. I don't, I don't know why if somebody like told me that, but I think as as I get older, I, I seem to realize that you know once those fronts move through and we get that high pressure on the backside in those bluebird sunny clear days, that's usually when I see the best and most movement. Yeah. Um, so those are the times when I like to hunt the most. But I definitely like you know like I was saying, you look at the macro view and say, okay. We got a cold front moving in tonight. Some deer are probably going to be on their feet, and they're going to want to feed, you know. But if I've got a 50-acre cut cornfield, like the macro view is like, I think I want to hunt this cornfield because I think the does are going to be out there tonight, and there's probably going to be a buck that comes out to look for them. The micro is like, okay, where the heck are they going to come out into the field? How am I going to approach into that stand, or how am I going to get out of it when I'm done hunting? What's the wind doing? You know, where are there active scrapes or rubs? What is my trail camera data telling me? Like, that's the micro stuff that I think helps you hone in on the exact specific, you know, 20 yard radius area you need to be in to get a shot versus just saying, I'm going to set up on this field somewhere and hope a deer walks by me. Gotcha. So now we're going to take it to that ultimate level that, you know, Mark you targeted one buck in Michigan and really one buck only this past season. And did what changed for you from going from a, what you considered a mature buck or something that you would put in a hit list category to now only hunting one buck? You're, you're, you're asking like, what's the why behind that? Well, what changed in was there any change in your in your process or approach to the hunting season when you know you went from any deer to mature buck and now you're hunting one deer and one deer mm. only yeah so how did my hunting strategy change right so this is where the micro becomes a lot more important for me at least because yeah. you can fall back on the macro a lot when you're just targeting any mature buck because you know core basic ideas, you know, could work for any mature buck, you know, hunting downwind of a bedding area during the rut or by a good food source, whatever it might be. You know, if you stick to that long enough and if you don't make stupid mistakes, you've got a good chance that eventually if there's mature bucks in the area, one might come through there. But when you've got just one deer, then it does flip the script a lot because now I know that certain foundation rules that I might look at don't apply to this buck because I know him so well. So in this kind of case where I've gotten to know a deer so well, um, then you do get in this weird wormhole of the details because of that, like the, all the information you have to work with can sometimes overwhelm you. So, you know, and a lot of people already know this story, but this buck I've been watching for three years have had, I don't know, over 40 in-person encounters or sightings of him, something like that have watched him for just hours and hours and hours. Lots of different things have gone on. Um, so, you know, this past season, again, it was basically him or nothing. So I knew that there was a certain time of year that the, over the past three years, he started moving during daylight. So I wasn't going to hunt him at all until that annual pattern happened. So I waited till October 23rd or 24th or whatever it was. And then I started hunting based off that historical knowledge. So I took historical knowledge, applied that to the time of year I was going to hunt him. I applied that to the places I hunted him. Like I knew that there was certain sections of the farm that he was usually, whenever he was daylight active, it was these sections I was seeing. So I ignored other parts of the farm that any other year I'd say could have offered good chances. 
But instead, I was focused on the micro-specific details to that specific deer. Um, and I went so far as you know tracking every single sighting I had of him and every single daylight trail camera picture of him. I logged all of that stuff, and then I logged all of the specific data that correlated with that. So for each sighting or picture I had, the time of day, I had the date, I had the moon phase, I had the what time the moon rose or set, I had what time the moon was directly overhead or directly under underfoot, I had the barometric pressure, I had the temperature, I had um, a category in my spreadsheet that determined or that said whether or not this was after a cold front. So if there was more than a 10 degree temperature drop that happened just before this or during this sighting or picture, that was marked. Um, a whole slew of different things, wind direction, wind speed, all that. So then I could try to see if there was any patterns. Um, and in some cases, I was seeing some patterns there. So focusing on that little minutia, I think, can help with a single deer. But to the to the point earlier, it can also be a little bit of a detriment because sometimes that can take some of the fun out of it. If you go too far, if that obsession level gets too high, um, that can be stressful. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you can just start getting yourself turned around in circles. And before you know it, you're, you're focused so much on that little stuff that you, you lose sight of the big picture. So my big challenge this past year was again, and, and I said this already, but it was that finding that balance point. Um, it's even more important when you're hunting one deer, the details do matter a lot. Um, but you can't lose sight of the big picture. So I always would try to think through the mini stuff, the micro stuff, but then I'd always try to zoom out and look at the whole story. Um, and I think once you can do those two things at the same time, I think that's when you've got a chance with these single deer hunts. Justin, have you ever hunted or, you know, put one buck? It was either like him or bust in a, in a, into a season. Um, kind of, I tried last year and then he got killed on October 28th. So I didn't really get a whole lot of opportunity to hunt him. Um, but he wasn't also the only, he was the only deer I was hunting on that particular property, but I was hunting some other properties as well, you know, so I didn't put all my eggs into that basket, but I agree with, you know, everything that Mark said, you know, when it comes to hunting a specific deer, like then, I mean, you're down to like analyzing tracks, you know, you're, you're really utilizing trail cameras to try to pinpoint areas that that deer is using it specific times of the year, where he's bedding, where he's feeding, preferred travel patterns. You know, you're just a whole nother level of, of micro analysis of data. You know, and the fact of the matter is, I've always believed that deer like people have personalities. And some deer are just more killable than other deer. You know, sometimes there's just deer that are frustrating that don't seem to hold true to any patterns from year to year or that are just ultra, ultra nocturnal, and the window to try to kill them is is so incredibly small. You know, so sometimes I think you could just beat your head against the wall trying to, to, to kill some of these deer that are just, un, not, I don't want to say unkillable, but almost unkillable, right? So I, I want to get lucky one of these years and find a really <laughs> big deer that, that's killable, that just makes dumb mistakes, but generally the older and bigger they get, you know, the smarter they are. If they were dumb, they would have been killed when they were young. So, uh, and that's part of the, the fun. I mean, that's what hunting is for us. You know, it's the thrill of the chase and the, this planning and this, this stuff that we complain about sometimes being frustrating. It's also 
enjoyable, you know, and that's why, that's why we do it. Right. Oh yeah. But, uh, yeah, the attention to detail and then just the discipline to be smart. You know, I think Mark alluded to or said something earlier about like the first time you go into a stand is your best time to, to kill a deer out of it. Right. Well, it's hard, man. When that season opens on October 1st and you get that first good cold front in October and you're raring to go, it's like, it's almost impossible to keep yourself from going to what you might consider your best spot or your best opportunity to kill that deer, even though he might not be on his feet during daylight yet. You know, you think and you hope that he's going to be, but sometimes, you know, in the back of your mind, you should wait or you should do something else and you don't. Um, and you know, that sometimes that can hurt your chances. So I just think, you know, being disciplined is, is a huge thing for me. I've come to, taking October or a good chunk of October to um, purposely stay out of some of my better areas and go just do things I wouldn't normally do, hunt areas that maybe I've overlooked years gone by, you know, been like, oh, that's not a very good spot. Sometimes I'll be like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to go sit over there. I haven't been there in a while. And sometimes you get lucky and you find, you know, something that you didn't expect, but it also kind of keeps me uh, occupied and it keeps me from sitting some of my better spots. Uh, but then like in my case, when I think about it, like I spent most of my October purposely staying out of the area where I believe this big deer I was hunting was living. And the weekend that I started hunting them, I, I said I was going to start hunting them the weekend of the, the 28th, the last weekend in October. And that was the day he got killed a mile away. So I wasted almost all of October not hunting him on purpose, trying to leave him alone you know, and in hindsight, should I maybe have gone in there? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Maybe. Um, so hindsight's always twenty twenty, I guess. So would you guys say that then as, as far as breaking down the, the any deer mature buck target buck, if we were to write a book, like the any deer would be a book for kids, right? And then the mature buck would be something like uh, a teenager would read. And then a target buck would be this textbook in, like Mark said, calculus, where it's just really, really detailed and really specific about, you know, if then, you know, if this, then that type of breakdown. But still someone could follow that to, to, you know, to end up harvesting a target buck. Well, I haven't figured out that secret formula yet, so I ain't writing no damn books. <laughs> nobody's nobody's going to read me try to tell them how to kill a specific mature buck when I haven't ever figured it out yet. I'll stick with the uh, how to just kill pretty good three- and four-year-olds that score between 130 and 150. If you need the guy to write that book, I'm, I'm the guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... I think you can you can have like a basic system or a certain level of things that you start thinking about each level that'll get you started. But then there's just there's always just going to be the flexibility that you need for different situations. And the one other thing I would say, two other things I'd say, I'd say number one, um, all of those different tiers you mentioned, you know, ones for kids, ones for teenagers, ones for adults or whatever, um, that, that also is dependent on where you're hunting too. So, right. you know, uh, a specific targeting, a specific target buck might be the highest difficulty on your private land, managed private land or whatever, but it might be just as much of a, it just, what am I trying to say here? It could be as difficult, if not more difficult to kill any mature buck 
on a piece of public land in Michigan, or it's probably a lot harder to kill any mature buck on a piece of public land in the East or wherever it might be. So there's different levels of difficulty, of course. Um, so it's kind of cool to be able to take whatever your situation is and then slowly try to ramp up the challenge to, to keep you engaged and interested. Um, the, the final thing I'd say about the system stuff is that while I do think like having these, these kind of, whether you want to call them steps or rules or foundations that you want to have to help you make your decisions and make your season a little bit easier. I think that stuff's helpful. Um, but I think the one, uh, risk of that is that if you start repeating or if you develop a system or a set of routines that is not, um, being rewarded with success, but you stick to that routine. So I think a lot of people, um, start they've got a basic system that they go through they know all right opening day i start hunting and then i like to hunt this tree during the rut and i like to sit in this ground blind during gun season or whatever and they just fall into a comfortable routine maybe they call it their system and uh, yeah every once in a while i kill something and they just do it over and over and over and over again um that i think is is the the, the dark side of systems if you have a routine or a system or a set of steps that is not you know, you're not actually getting the outcome that you want from it but you keep doing it because it's easy it's comfortable it's what you know um even if you are sometimes being rewarded you sometimes do have success i always think that it's important to try new things to have your mind open to new things because um, sometimes you can get so stuck in your way so stuck in the rut that you do miss opportunities and you do totally miss out on different ideas that maybe could help you because um, you're still so kind of mired in the usual. Um, so, you know, we talk about this a lot in the Wired Hunt podcast. We have so many different guests that come on and I'm sure you've talked to all sorts of people on your podcast too, Dan, and they all have a lot of success. And in many cases, these people sometimes do very, very different things. They have wildly different strategies very different approaches to doing it, but they still are able to wrap a tag around an antler. Um, so there's something to be said about keeping an open mind and being willing to try new things and, and maybe see how that can fit into your system. Maybe it changes the way you approach things. Maybe it changes the way you look at some portion of your usual routine. Maybe it completely flips your routine upside down. Um, but I, I think there's something to be said about trying stuff too and just learning. There's not just one way. I want to ask you a question, Mark. So you've been hunting the same buck for the last couple of years. What do you think the biggest thing you're doing wrong is that's prevented you from killing that deer? Well, <laughs> yeah. Being on Facebook when he comes. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, that would be the, the I biggest. Because I, <laughs> I think, like, to my story about, like, I'm just, I've realized that, like, I'm not that great at shed hunting. I find some sheds here and there, but, like, I don't know that it's, am I doing something wrong? I, I don't know. Like sometimes self-analysis is like sitting down and saying like, what the hell, where am I going wrong? Like how can I keep making the wrong decision on like which stand to be in? Like you would think that at a certain point in time, our paths would, would cross. If I just keep hunting long enough, sooner or later, I'm going to get a shot. I mean, what do you think it is? Is is it the deer? I mean, is he just unkillable? Is he just smart? I mean, it seems to me like you've seen him I mean, more than I think most people ever see an individual deer, right? Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a deer I've ever seen that many times that I know is the same deer, right? I mean, what do, what do you think it is about this deer that's just, he's so dang hard to kill? Yeah, man, I've thought about it a ton. I mean, I've, I've tried to analyze this in my head a lot. And I'll give you two answers. One answer is that, you know, 
part of me, part of me like looks at all the things I did wrong. And so I'm like, well, I, on this, like me and Dan did a podcast a few months ago where I started doing this and we didn't even have time to go through all the different things, but I had picked, I'd found after looking through my season, I had like 15 different specific examples that I was looking back on and saying, you know, that might've been a bad decision that might've led to me getting winded or something. I should have done something different. So I had all these different little specific things that maybe got me busted or maybe screwed something up. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things that maybe I could try to be a little bit better about. Like example, um, I had gone into the season saying that I was not going to hunt until this annual pattern kicked in. He usually started moving in daylight around like the 24th, 25th, 26th. Like the last two years, I had daylight encounters with him first time of the year on the 24th and the year before is the 25th. So I thought, okay, when that time of the year rolls around again and when I've got a cold front that coincides with it, that I think is going to be the best chance of the year. So I'm going to wait until that perfect situation lines up and then I'm gonna hunt him and kill him that first night was my hope so I see the cold front coming through it's gonna hit on I think it was the 23rd I was like, this is perfect um and then that afternoon arrives and the temperatures have dropped time of year is great but the winds were like super high it was way windier than I wanted it to be and I'm stuck here it's like one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon I'm like everything's great except for it's like gale force winds and that's a big negative around us. I think if you get to a certain wind speed, that can kind of slow things down. So I'm sitting like, should I go because all these other things are telling me that I should go? Or should I not because it's so windy and it just could be bad? It could be swirly. I don't know. I ended up going because I was so excited. Like I've been looking forward to this day for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, it, you know, I told myself for a week that 23rd, I'm going to go. All the conditions are right. And now I finally arrived and it wasn't quite as right. But I'd already gotten myself so amped up about it that I was like, ah, I got to go. So I went, I got into the tree and I'm in the tree and it's even windier than the forecast said it was going to be. And then because the wind was so strong, it started like swirling real bad and pushing wind back towards this bedding area that I thought holy field might be. So within like 10 minutes of getting the stand, I'm like, okay, this is a cluster and this is not good. So that I packed everything up and left. Um, so that was an example of like, was I not disciplined enough? Should I not have gone in there because I knew that the wind wasn't great, even though these other things were good? Could I have, you know, could he have winded me in that 10 minutes I was in there when that wind swirled? So it's like that level of detail that I was going into and all these different examples like that, that if I went into a season and did not make any mistakes like that, I think that gave me a better chance to kill him. But on the other hand, um, and I don't want to try to act like, you know, Oh, I've got a horrible situation, but like the deer is living most of the year on a neighbor's property. The only time he ever seems to come onto mine is, you know, he'll come out to chase does and then he'll come out to feed sometimes. Uh, but the actual property that I have permission to hunt on is mostly just open field. And there's like a finger of timber that comes out, a little food plot plant there, and there's a swamp with some timber, but historically he's never used that side property. So I was basically just trying to pick him off on the edges whenever he came out of the good cover and bedding on the neighbor. So it was just kind of a, I knew I had very few opportunities every year when he would do that. I could see him a lot, but he'd always be on the neighbors. Um, so there was just a time or two. He might come onto my side that I could get that shot. So I've always been really hyper focused on trying to pick the right time when I think that's going to happen and be in the right place. Um, so I haven't done I that think perfectly. Access, right. is kind of what that boils down to, right. You gotta have access to the, the good spot where the deer's living and spending most of his time. And I think that's probably the one biggest factor, 
to killing these deer is you got to have access to where they're at. And that's why people that kill big deer on a very regular basis, like generally speaking, most of them have really good access to really good properties where those types of deer are at. You know, Absolutely. it's certainly it's it's hard enough as it is. It becomes exponentially harder when the deer doesn't live on your property or, you know, you're sharing it with a bunch of other people or just whatever the case, like all those different things just make it so much more difficult. The big yeah. buck <clears throat> equation, my friends, the big buck equation. Yep. Yeah. 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 You know, the one other thing I would add to everything I just said, though, there about analyzing all these details and it goes back to like this. Do we go too far sometimes is I start asking myself, like, am I am I nitpicking myself too much? Because if I do look back over the three seasons that I've hunted him, the first year I passed on him. Could have killed him, but I passed. The second year I had him at 40 yards, could have taken the shot, but chose not to. I had him. Um, let me think about this. Yeah. So I had I had shot him at 40 yards, but decided not to take the shot because it was a little bit too dark. And then in mid-December, I had another shot at him during muzzleloader season, but chose not to try to kill him at that point because I thought he could make it. So so those first two years, I technically passed on him. And then last year, I had him at 25 yards in the middle of the day, but I had just screwed up because I was looking at my phone and didn't realize he was there. So I'm nitpicking, but I actually have put myself in a position to kill him each of these three years. So maybe I should be telling myself, you know what you did? You did a pretty decent job. You put yourself in a position to kill this deer. You chose not to two years. The third year, you just made a stupid mistake. Um, but everything else, you know, came together. You just need that one time. I've had that one time every year. Just there's always been a little bit of something. There's that so. There's that little teeny margin for error that we talk about when it comes to hunting big deer and, and specific deer. So many times you only get, if you get a chance at all, usually it's that one fleeting chance. And if you can't capitalize for one reason or another, you know, that may be it, you know, yep. for that for that year. So those attention to details in these damn phones, you know, these stupid cell phones have probably saved more deer's lives than 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 we all really realize. And that's a whole oh, yeah. that's a whole nother topic is that moment of truth sealing the deal, you know, part of I mean, because you can go in and you can be great at the process or the strategy or and, and have the perfect access. But once that that target comes into range and you get buck fever and you can't control yourself and you lose control. Really nothing else makes sense or it doesn't make yeah. sense, but it doesn't matter All for nothing. Yeah. You All have for yeah. nothing, you know, and at the same time you could be great at the moment of truth, but if that buck is, you know, 10 extra yards away because you weren't in the right tree, you know, yeah. that's a lose, lose situation as well. So, yeah. it, you know, I was uh, I listened to Mark one of your podcasts you did with a, a roundtable of guys that were mostly a lot of like public land hunters and guys from all over the country that were really successful uh, yeah. deer hunters that killed a lot of big bucks and I forget the, the guy's name but he basically he said something along the lines of like I think we all have that one friend who would probably have a much more impressive wall of trophies if he could just shoot right at the moment of yeah. truth oh, yeah. and I was like does that guy know me? Because <laughs> he's, he's talking about me right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, be clutched, gentlemen. I know we all got kids. We got to probably get back to and yeah. as much as I'd I, I got to go. I have to go do some filming tonight, actually, for the new show intro for our show. That's what I'm going to do right now. A new show? Well, for Bowhunter Die, we got right. the next season starting here shortly. We got to finish up the new intro. 
So I'm going to get a couple last-minute B-roll shots out in the field. Gotcha. And uh, I have two quick shameless plugs. Can I do two shameless plugs before I leave, Dan? You are a whore. Will you allow friend. me? Will you allow me? Yes. So, so we're doing a we're doing a little sale over at BustedRack.com. If everybody wants to get some some hoodies, I know uh, temps are going to be warming up, but it's still pretty cool out there. So we're we're doing a sale on hoodies. Uh, if anybody wants to check that out, and then on the BowHunting.com side of things, we just released a video tonight, actually as we're recording this, and I want you two guys to go watch it and then just shoot me a text or whatever. Let me know what you think. It's called Desperate Bow Hunters. Um, <laughs> So we released that video on YouTube tonight. It's going to be hitting Facebook and Instagram and everything else by the time this podcast airs. But I want everybody to go check it out. We had a blast with it. Todd and I went out here locally um, and we filmed this little kind of like a funny little skit video, just kind of poking fun at, at, at bow hunters who are desperate. And the whole the gist of it is, you know, you see a buck out there and you call to him and he's not responding. So you just continue going through your litany of things to try to get the buck to come over you know so it's grunting it's dough bleeding it's rattling it's snort wheezing it's you know spring you know tink spray in the air and like we just like we went to the umpteenth ridiculous degree like we pulled out decoys we had decoys up in the in the uh in the stands with us it's it's a pretty funny little video so check it out when you guys get a chance and uh let us know what you think nice Any any shameless plugs mark yeah, I'll just say uh, check out the Wired Hunt podcast and then subscribe to the Wired Hunt YouTube channel because I'm doing weekly videos now, just kind of documenting all the stuff I'm up to these days and uh, putting a lot more time and effort into that coming up. So make sure you're checking out the YouTube vids. There cool. you go. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking time out of your night to uh, hop on and uh, chat about what we all love. Our pleasure. Thanks, Dan. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Mr. Czar and Mr. Kenyon for coming on the podcast and uh, chit-chatting today. Hopefully you guys liked that uh, topic. I know I did. Other than that, huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. Please, if you like what you hear, wherever you go to download your podcasts, please leave a review on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, on the Whitetail feed, and on the Big Game feed. Let us know what you think of the podcast. I would really appreciate that. If you haven't already, go to Nine Finger Chronicles Instagram and Facebook and follow and the Sportsman's Nation on Instagram and Facebook and follow there as well. And go to sportsmansnation.com and check out all of the podcasts that uh, are on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Exodus Trail Cameras, Wasp Broadheads, Ozonics, Ripcord, and Lone Wolf. Man, really appreciate the support that those companies give me. What else, man? I think that's it. I'm going to keep it sh- the outro short today. Please, 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 if you're going to be in a tree, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.